Welcome back to the Plant-Based DFW podcast show. And in this episode, you will hear Dr. Nancy Erickson address a group of women with a variety of backgrounds. Now, this conversation happened before COVID. During this intimate conversation, Dr. Erickson answers specific questions related to nutrition as it relates to menarche, infertility, pregnancy, child rearing, fibroids, menopause, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease. Dr. Erickson is very passionate about women's health. She is said to be a speaker for the American College of Lifestyle Medicine's Lifestyle Medicine Conference in October 2020. Dr. Nancy Erickson graduated with a BS in biology from the University of Miami in Miami, Florida in 1981, and an MD degree from the Wright State University School of Medicine in 1985. Dr. Erickson and completed her residency in obstetrics and gynecology at the Wright State University Affiliated Hospital in 1989 and then a fellowship in maternal fetal medicine at the University of Houston Health Sciences Center in 1991. She is currently an associate professor in maternal fetal medicine at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. In the last few years, she has developed a great interest in lifestyle medicine and thus addresses it here in this conversation. Enjoy. Remember to subscribe to our channel to hear more great episodes like this one. Links to our YouTube channel, newsletter, podcast, and links for our guests are also located in the show notes. All right. Well, thanks for um, coming. That's nice of you to spend your Friday night here. I'm a little overwhelmed at the uh, attendance (laughs) and the fact that I have to now swivel, but I'll make it work. You heard what I do for a living, and just to qualify, you know, I subspecialized in high-risk obstetrics um, because of my personality, which is I like taking care of things over shorter periods of time and having a beginning and an end. So pregnancy fits my uh, personality really well. Um, But since I got my degree or finished my residency, I've become more and more interested in the lifestyle stuff. And the crazy part is, is originally when I went to medical school, I was planning on doing family practice. And then I got waylaid because I realized if I'm going to be up all night doing something, I might as well be delivering a baby because everybody's happy, right? (laughs) It's not fun going to a code. I've done those. It is really sad. And um, it's not like the movies because most people don't make it through it. Sometimes they do, but that's not usually the case. So now I'm in a position where my passion and my interest have started to shift where it's like, what can we do to keep people from getting to that point? Even though that that may not seem like it makes any sense with pregnancy, it actually does because what you do before and what you do after has great impact, not just on the baby, but on your life. And that's the part that OBGYNs don't always talk about because this isn't what we're trained to do. So I went and got board certified in lifestyle medicine because I want to be able to speak to this to women and other physicians who take care of women or or providers, I should say, because it's more than just physicians, um, to make a difference. So I'm going to tell you my story first. So you know how I got into this because I was not a lifelong vegetarian or vegan. I started uh, when I was age 52. And that's because I was approaching menopause. I actually had just gone through menopause, and I was not enjoying myself. (laughs) At the time, I lived in Asheville, North Carolina, and I remember being out on my deck in uh, shorts and a T-shirt and flip-flops, and it was 35 degrees outside. It was not fun. And for those of you who have gone through, you know what I'm talking about. And for those of you who have not, I'm just saying. (laughs) Anything you can do to avoid that, try it. Okay, so I was looking into what kind of lifestyle would be best for me over a lifetime because I knew my mother had been diagnosed with osteoporosis and she also got diagnosed with ductal carcinoma in situ, breast cancer, which is localized, hasn't spread. Of course, breast cancer was not my uh, forte. That's really another whole nother area of medicine other than OBGYN. And I remember her asking me about what to do and I... I didn't really know what to say other than looking online and looking at the treatments and things. But now, if I had known then what I know now, I would have told her something very different. 
So, and my mother actually um, died from a fracture secondary to osteoporosis. She was about ready to leave me the rehab. Unfortunately, she got something called C. diff, which is a bug that's very common. She basically got um, ignored and uh, she ended up in an ICU and about 48 hours later she died. She didn't have to die from C. diff sepsis, one. That was a whole one story, but she didn't have to die from a fracture either if she had done some different things. So I had that kind of as the background and thinking, um, I don't want to get osteoporosis and I don't want to get breast cancer. So what can I do that would help me stay out of the doctor's office and not have to have chemo or any of those other things? Because truth be told, I don't really care to go to doctors. I don't trust most of them. It's true. When I do go to them and they tell me something, I said, well, and I'll say, but this, this, and this, because this is what the literature says. And I do that because they have one mindset. And I'm not dissing all doctors. What I am saying is the allopathic form of medicine, which is what we do, is great at acute care. It's great. It's the best in the US of anywhere in the world. The problem is 85% of our healthcare costs go to management of chronic diseases. And so we're kind of at a loss right now. Um, we're throwing medications, we're throwing more medicine at people, but that's not necessarily helping them. It does help some. I'm not saying medicine is never needed. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that's not the foundational piece. And so when I was researching on diets and, and just what kind of lifestyle, I had a friend go, oh, you should watch Forks Over Knives. So some of you have probably seen that movie, and I watched it, and it dropped in like that because I had been moving in that direction anyway, eating more plants, and realized, oh, here's all the science, the piece I didn't have. And within a week, I cleaned out all my cupboards, and I went exclusively whole food plant-based. Within 10 days, my hot flushes were gone. 10 days. So that's pretty impressive. And I realized we're onto something because what, what we eat really is foundational for healing. And it has been since the beginning of medicine. You probably have heard the quote, let food be thy medicine. So he said a lot of really interesting things, including before you help treat a patient, ask them if they're willing to give up the things that are making them sick. We don't hear that one very often. But I'm kind of a quote nerd, so I look stuff like this, things like this up. That really got to me because I realized, um, and especially the, when you look at human personality, we'd much rather add one thing in than remove the things that are not good for us. So for 52 years, I was hardcore carnivore. Hardcore. I mean, I wasn't paleo, but I grew up eating meat of all kinds, and so... For me, it didn't make sense anymore. Um, I, did, I wanted to have a good quality of life as I aged, and I didn't want to die from a lot of things that I could prevent. And that was the reason for doing it. You may have heard of the specialty called um, lifestyle medicine, which um, both Dr. Riz and I recently got boarded, but it encompasses six different things, like food, nutrition, adequate exercise or physical activity, adequate sleep, avoiding risky substances, um, emotional, or emotional wellness, and then connectedness, relationships. The reason I'm telling you about this is because there are more and more providers getting boarded in this where they look at the whole profile of someone. They're not just looking at the specific area of their expertise. So you may want to... Um, look at the lifestylemedicine.org website if you're interested in finding a provider who does lifestyle medicine who can look at more of these issues. They do have a membership list. And once you go to the website, you look under members or membership list, and then you drop down and look under members. And I think you put in your state or your zip code and you can find somebody. What's and that I, website again? It's lifestylemedicine.org. Okay. I wanted to mention that before I forget because a lot of people may be interested in following up. So um, for me, uh, the whole menopause thing was really my motivation for, for doing this. But I wish, I was telling my, I wish I knew 20 years, 30 years ago what I know now. 
and that's why I'm here. So irrespective of you know, what, what you take away tonight, I want you to know the truth about health and food. And really the key piece is food. Most of us, I don't think anybody in the room would take something that was labeled poison and give it to anyone, right? Because the effects are immediate. We know exactly what's gonna happen. That person is gonna be really sick and potentially could die. A lot of us don't realize that things we're eating are like that. The problem is it takes maybe 10, 20, or even 30 years to manifest the symptoms or the disease or the problem. And so the earlier you start, the better the benefits. Having said that, I've had great benefits starting where I was at. And one of the things I want you to take away is you cannot change you know, you can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending. So no matter where you are, it's never too late. I've heard of stories of 87 or 86 year old woman. I forget what she had. She had some disease. She started it and she's feeling great. So no matter where you are, there's benefits to doing this. Getting back to the whole menopausal thing, I found out later that, um, you know, eating a lot more soy based foods actually help you. Uh, avoid a lot of the symptoms of menopause. It doesn't help for every single thing, but soy in particular. In fact, I don't know if you've uh, realized or not, but a lot of the Asian countries, they have very low fracture rates for osteoporosis. And I've wondered about that. In fact, I used to think about this when I was in my 20s and in residency. I thought, why is it that they're not on hormonal replacement therapy, but they're not getting fractures? Why is that? I never understood that until now. And that is because of how they eat. And the Asians, for the most part, eat a whole food plant-based diet. Now, when they come over to this country and start eating like we do, or the average American, then they start getting the same things we're getting. And so, I mean, your, your OB-GYN or your primary care doctor may not even talk to you about any of these things because A, it takes time. B, they have to know something about it. And a lot of times they have what's called implicit bias, which means they just assume that you don't want to hear it because you may not want to do it. So if it, they think it's too hard to do, they may not tell you because they think it'll be too hard for you too. Getting back to the Asians, yeah, they, they remain physically active most of their life. They eat mostly plant-based foods and they eat a lot of soy foods and those actually help you prevent um, a lot of the symptoms. In fact, most of them don't have any hot flushes. It's very rare for them. They may have, um, you, you know what I mean by bone mineral density, the, the DEXA scan that you can get to check. That's usually is more for people in my age group, not younger unless there's some other medical issue going on. Their bone mineral density may or may not even be in the osteoporosis range. Even if it is, they don't tend to get fractures. And I find that very interesting. And it turns out, from what I've read <laughs> about plant-based protein or plant-based foods, is that it tends to protect you. Plus, you feel better, you're more physically active, you have more energy, and your, your quality of life is maintained as you age. When I turned 55, I started getting brochures on all kinds of medical equipment. <laughs> all kinds, like the, motor sco the scooters, I forget what they're called. And I'm thinking, why do they assume that I'm gonna need one of these? Why is that? And why am I getting these mailers? It's like, they, how do they know? How do they know how old I am? So, I mean, the, the, I think the assumption that a lot of us have is that this is the way it's gotta be, but it doesn't have to be at all. We all have a choice and we all have the opportunity to do something different to help ourselves out. And even if you are diagnosed with something, um, unfortunate, like osteoporosis or some form of cancer, a lot of the studies also show that plant-based foods actually help um, increase your survival. So for example, in breast cancer survivors, the same diet that they recommend um, for preventing breast cancer is the same one they recommend for people who have gone through treatment to improve their survival. And it's very powerful because like for example, for every 16 or 15 grams of fiber that you eat, uh, you reduce your risk for breast cancer by 15%. So if you eat 60 grams of fiber a day, 
And that, by the way, is a whole food plant-based diet gives you 60 grams or more upwards, 60 or 70 grams a day. You can reduce your risk by 60%. That's pretty impressive. I don't know of anything out there that can reduce your risk that much. And one of the reasons why plants are so powerful and why they're medicine is they actually change the non-DNA structure of our DNA. Does that make sense? Our, it's not the actual genes. Those genes are there. But there's something else called an epigenome that surrounds the DNA that can be turned on or turned off, like a light switch. We all have electricity wired into our houses, but it, the lights aren't always on. You have to flip a switch. So the way you eat can flip that switch on or off. So you've heard of the BRAC gene. The, guess what? That's actually a gene that's supposed to suppress breast cancer. But some women have inherited a mutation or a change in that DNA, which makes them more susceptible to having breast cancer. And by eating plant-based, you can actually turn the BRAC gene back on to work right. It's really powerful, and you can do it pretty quickly. And they've done, Dean Ornish has done studies in patients who have had prostate cancer, early stages, and shown that they can reverse some of those changes including something else called telomeres, which is kind of a complicated subject. All of our chromosomes have a cap on the end, kind of like your shoelace has a cap on the end. And you know what happens if that comes off, right? The whole shoelace starts to unravel. What we found out is that the telomeres are connected with aging or premature aging. So the shorter your telomeres are, which normally happens throughout your life, as the older you get, the shorter our telomeres get, uh, the shorter they are, the more susceptible you are to premature aging. The longer they are, the less susceptible you are, the healthier you are. So they were able to determine with a plant-based diet that they can actually lengthen the telomeres, which is pretty impressive. I know we all invest in products to help us look better. We all do, right? But the product that actually helps you the most as far as how we look, our skin, our complexion, just just how vibrant we feel is actually food, plant food. So I think that's pretty amazing that you can actually uh, slow down aging with that. I don't know if you've ever heard of the physician named Brooke Goldner. She was a medical student, had um, a really end-stage kidney disease from lupus, and she found out that by eating plants, she eats mostly a raw plant diet, but she reversed her lupus completely. I've met her. She's in her early 40s, but she doesn't look like it. She looks 10 years younger. It's pretty amazing. Even I, I mean, I don't know if you could guess my age, but I know I look younger than I'm supposed to because no one can guess my age right. <laughs> so I appreciate that because, you know, we're only, God only gives us so much stuff to work with. And I, I don't know about you, but I need all the help I can get. <laughs> I don't want more wrinkles than I need, right? Nobody wants that. So, you know, I've talked a little bit about, you know, aging and plants, but I also want to address the beginning of life because that's where I get involved, not at conception, obviously, but um, shortly thereafter. <laughs> uh, the same principle of the epigenetics or epigenome, what a woman eats when she's pregnant or even more what she eats before she gets pregnant can influence the future health of their child. So there's a lot of studies that have looked at this. We need more research on this. In fact, women's health really is just in general a neglected area for not only plant-based, but a lot of studies. But I wanted to let you know that um, you have a great impact. You have an opportunity to make a generational change by what you eat, either going into pregnancy or during your pregnancy. I'm jumping back to Brooke Goldner, but she had a patient that she was um, talking with that was in her third trimester with lupus. She started Brooke's protocol, and within 30 days, she got rid of all her symptoms. 30 days. Now, I can tell you from managing patients with lupus who are, for example, on steroids, they have much, many more complications during the pregnancy. What you eat really does influence the babies in, in a really um, profound way because they've done studies that look at a uh, high meat diet during pregnancy. We used to think that the plaques, the atherosclerotic plaques didn't occur until probably teenage years, but they've actually found fetuses that had, um, the mothers lost their, their baby, and they looked at these fetuses, and they looked at the aorta, which is the big artery that comes out of the heart, 
and show that those plaques start in utero. And they had a lot more plaques in the babies whose moms ate a lot of meat than those who didn't. That's, for me, was mind-boggling. There's a, a study that came out, um, it was several years ago, a, a group of women that were exclusively vegan. And um, they had very low instances of preterm delivery, preeclampsia, and hypertension during pregnancy. So those are three really common things that happen. And I was really amazed by this because I think the incidence of preeclampsia is like one in a thousand. Well, in the U.S., on a standard American diet, it's anywhere from two to eight percent. You may think, oh, that's not that bad. You know, we have to deliver. The only way to fix preeclampsia is delivery. Um, it's unique to, to humans. Animals don't get preeclampsia. And the fact that that can be changed with what we eat is mind-boggling. And the importance of that is there are several things that increase your lifetime risk for atherosclerosis. And some of those occur during pregnancy, like preterm delivery, preeclampsia, uh, gestational hypertension. And the reason is, is those are all pro-inflammatory diseases. So now we are being told as OBGYNs that we need to start counseling women who have these problems during their pregnancy, at their postpartum visit, that their lifetime risk is increased and they need to start with a physician who can help them. Now, they're not talking about lifestyle physician because they don't really address that, but they are thinking about referring them to a cardiologist for observation, you know, getting tests like a highly sensitive CRP, which is, measures the level of inflammation in your body and things like that. So we're now seeing a connection between the diseases that occur during pregnancy and, and lifetime risk for cardiovascular disease. Getting back to what you eat, if you eat exclusively plant-based, you lower your risk for, to less than a one out of a thousand. That's pretty impressive. And you improve the health of your future child. Do you guys know when the most rapid rate of growth is after the baby is born? First year. They double in size in the first year. The American Academy of Pediatrics, as well as the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, re recommends exclusive breastfeeding for the first six months. Guess how much protein is in breast milk? It's usually closer to the 1% to 2% range. That is biological veganism right there. Now, how is it that a baby can double in size on 1% to 2% protein? My point only is that your baby can double in size on a very low-protein diet. Um, there's no harm in utero then with your baby's growth either. A lot of people are concerned, and your OBGYNs in particular are going to um, be uncomfortable probably if you tell them you're whole food plant-based. Um, and the reason is, is they don't really understand what that means, and they don't understand the nutrient profile that you're getting. But the nutrient profile that you get on a whole food plant-based diet is as good or better than the U.S. government plate, which is what the Department of Agriculture currently recommends. In fact, there was a study out this month by Michaela Carlson, I don't know if you've seen it, um, that compares the theoretical micronutrients in a whole food plant-based diet with a traditional vegan diet with a USDA uh, government plate. And the, the micronutrients and the macronutrients you get are, are completely fine as far as the profile. I think the concern that most OBs have is not every person who calls himself vegan is eating healthy. So you could be vegan and eat, drinking Coke and French, eating French fries, but that's not necessarily a healthy diet. That's not going to give you micronutrients. It gives you calories, but it won't give you micronutrients. Um, so that's why they get nervous about it. But whole food plant-based is really safe. In fact, the American uh, Dietetics Association said in a statement over 10 years ago that a, uh, a well-balanced um, a vegetarian diet is safe for all stages of life, including pregnancy, infancy, childhood, and adulthood. So there's no objection or what we call contraindication to doing it. We only stress the fact that you have to, you know, pretty much eat the rainbow and eat a variety of foods. If your favorite vegetables are corn and potatoes and that's all you eat, then that's not going to be very healthy over the long term. So all of these micronutrients that I'm talking about are really what changes the epigenome in our bodies that actually turn off these genes. I think Gene, Dean Ornish, this one particular study that he did on the telomeres again, where I think he showed over 300 some odd 
changes in the epigenome, if I remember correctly, over 350, that occurred in three months on a whole food plant-based diet. So it works very fast. And that's the good news is you can see short-term results and you get good long-term results. And I would encourage you, when you're thinking about food, is think not just about the short-term results, but the long-term results, what, no matter what you're eating. I'll give you an example. You may know that, or may not know that processed food, or processed meat rather, is a class one carcinogen. So that's everything like bacon, sausage, hot dogs, your, all your um, deli meats, your uh, beef jerky, things like that. They're all considered class one carcinogens, which means they do cause cancer. And red meat is considered a class two carcinogen, which means it probably causes cancer. So red meat includes not only beef, but pork, lamb, uh, veal, things like that. There's umpteen million studies now that show that correlation. So even if you're not ready to move whole food plant-based, any changes you make in that direction are going to be f for your better health. How you eat during the pregnancy does influence, it's like a multi-generational change. They've shown this unequivocally in animal studies. Animal studies are fine, but I really care about what happens to humans. There was a study that was done in uh, patients who ate a lot of meat and, they, or, and also had hypertension and showed correlation between high blood pressure at age 40. And there was a direct correlation. The more meat they ate, the higher the likelihood that they'd have high blood pressure at age 40. So that's pretty impressive. And then if your BMI is greater than 30, they've shown increased risk for, uh, and you have a BMI greater than 30 during the pregnancy, there's an increased risk for um, uh, obesity in your children, as well as metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes. And of course, during the pregnancy, there's increased risk for like cesarean section, having a big baby, increased risk for gestational um, diabetes, which is, oh, I meant, I knew there was a fourth one. Gestational diabetes is the fourth one that I mentioned. So gestational diabetes, um, gestational hypertension, preeclampsia, and preterm delivery are all markers for cardiovascular disease later in your life. So now if you get any of those during the pregnancy, we're to counsel those patients that they have an increased risk. Studies like the Adventist Health Study that look at a population of people that are either vegetarian or vegan um, give us a lot of data, but it doesn't compare directly to those who are on standard American diet necessarily. So this is where we need to grow in our area to do research so that we can have um, better information to convey to other physicians as well as um, patients. So the question is, how does whole food plant-based affect women's cycles? Yes, so um, it actually uh, regulates your hormones a lot better. And there's a lot of women that have um, either polycystic ovarian syndrome or uh, irregular periods or premenstrual disorder, also known as PMS when I was in training, um, that can be um, fixed or reversed by a whole food plant-based diet. Also, I, I neglected to mention um, infertility. And there's not a ton of information, but what I have read shows that the chances of um, conceiving naturally um, improved by um, over 50% if you go um, plant-based. The interesting thing to me is it's not one diet for one disease and one diet for another. It's really one, one way of life or one lifestyle that affects a whole lot of problems or prevents a whole lot of problems. And you can also reverse prediabetes. Um, it works very fast. Type 2 is the one that's been studied the most. Uh, with type 1, that's another can of worms, but I do know that there's a lot of, uh, there's been a lot of people that went whole food plant-based and were able to control their blood sugars. The problem with type 1 is because it happens so much earlier in your life, you're at risk for what we call microvascular disease. It affects the way the capillaries, the small blood vessels work. And um, the early, the, the high, it's not just um, the higher your blood sugars, it's also um, what kind of things you're eating. So you can get better regulation of your blood sugars with a whole food plant-based diet. That's both with type 2 and type 1. Now, I'm not saying you can reverse type 1. I don't know that that's been shown. So the, the birth control pills we have out now compared to where, when I was in training are very low dose. Um, I don't see any 
huge adverse effects to your body over the long term. I mean, there's been multiple studies looking at that. Um, I think it's just a matter of choice as far as what, what you want to use, if anything, to prevent a future pregnancy. But no, I don't, I don't see any... The amount of birth control, uh, hormones in the birth control pill are less than what your own body would produce. There's a lot of interest now. They're calling it the fourth trimester in postpartum care because we're realizing, I mean, this is the crazy part about OB-GYN. Most of the time we just focus on the reproductive years or, you know, menopause. But now, and we're not trained really in primary care at all. I mean, we get very little exposure. I do more, I don't do primary care, but I do more medical stuff because I see all kinds of women with medical problems during the pregnancy. But they're starting to realize that we can't just look at women as, you know, a nine-month period of time, that that's the only time to make a, a change. And there's a whole lifespan out there, both before and after those pregnancies, where we can make a difference. And oftentimes, not exclusively, but OB-GYNs mostly see reproductive age women. Most women don't go to another doctor unless they have some other medical problem for possibly until they get in their 50s. We're becoming more and more aware that we need to look at the entire lifespan and what can we do to help women take better care of themselves and avoid some of these complications. I mentioned those four things that happen during pregnancy that increase your risk for atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, which would be leading you eventually to either getting a heart attack or that kind of thing, um, or other uh, problems that like Dr. Riz takes care of, peripheral vascular disease and such. But there's other things like type 2 diabetes, chronic hypertension, autoimmune disease, all of these things and more increase your risk for atherosclerotic heart disease. Um, and why, why do I keep bringing that up? Because that's the major killer of women and men for that part. I mean, the top killer of women is heart disease. Number two is a uh, close second is cancer. And a lot of the cancers now we're realizing um, are lifestyle related like colon and breast and prostate. There are others out there like endometrial cancer, which is specific to your uterus. Um, they also believe is uh, mostly lifestyle related. So these are all things that we want to be able to make a difference and let women know that there are things that they can do to take care of themselves and to take care of their children and as well as future generations. And that's, you know, again, just to harp on that a little bit more is the impact that you have by changing what you eat during the pregnancy or before you get pregnant makes a huge difference in as many as three generations down as far as predisposition for certain diseases like metabolic syndrome, obesity, diabetes, etc. It's huge. It's a huge impact. One thing I don't want to do is make anyone feel like ashamed about anything because, you know, I didn't get started when I was 20. I was 52 when I started this. There's a lot of things I wish I could have done differently, which again is why I'm here tonight. <laughs> I want to let you know it's, ne it's never too late to make a change. It's never too late to make a positive influence, not only on yourself, but the people you love. So I want to be around, you know, I don't want to be in my 80s on one of those, you know, immobile or I watched my parents go through this where they lost their mobility. They couldn't be around their friends anymore. They had to do things a lot different and it was very sad. And when you start seeing the people you love, you, you either have to relocate or you, you can't get out and do the things you love to do anymore. It's really hard. And I've been through that season. Both my parents are gone now. I don't want to be like that. I want to be able to, you know, I hope I'm at the gym on the last day I live because a lot of medical problems can be fixed just by changing how we eat. And if you're not ready to go full bore, we talk about crowding out your plate. Start eating more plants. Start having either a day you don't eat meat or maybe if you eat meat three times a day, maybe go down to once a day. Anything you do and moving in that direction helps. A lot of studies are looking at um, the uh, plant index, they call it the plant index, to determine the percentage of plants that people are eating and, and the benefits. And the reason why Colin Campbell, who wrote China study, recommends 100% is because the data that he got from the China study shows that the best results were with 100% whole food plant-based. But we know realistically not everyone will do that. But anything you can do to move in that direction and get away from the the meat and the dairy and all that kind of stuff and processed food is going to benefit you. You're going to start feeling better. For some people, depending on where they're at in life, 
and what their health goals are would benefit more by going 100% whole food plant-based right away. Because sometimes when you try and do it gradually, if you're already diagnosed with something, you may not see the results you really want to see. And you go, oh, that didn't work. It's just because <laughs> you didn't do all those things. Versus when you're, you don't have a health crisis of some sort, um, you're at least moving in the right direction. I was telling Maya earlier, I, when I travel, um, when I used to go home and visit my dad after my mom died, he used to make fun of me because <laughs> he said I would stink up the kitchen with vegetables, which I thought was hilarious because... I don't know how you do that, but okay. Maybe I, maybe I was cooking Indian that night. I don't know, but I thought that was funny. I honestly think I've had more fun. I love to cook. I've had more fun eating this way than I did when I ate meat. And I was like a foodie. I like going, I like going to nice restaurants, and I like going and eating different things. And I haven't missed it one bit. I, I noticed immediate benefits, especially when I gave up dairy first, and then I saw forks over knives, and I went full bore. That's a great question. The question is, do you see a correlation between diet and the age of menarche? What is that? Uh, menarche is uh, when you start your period. So, yes, actually, it's kind of disrupting the time clocks, and, and kids are sometimes having menses at age 9, 10, and a lot of that is through the dairy, because of the hormones they give the cows. We weren't seeing that 20, 30, 40 years ago. Organic just means there's lack of pesticides, although there are some that are never zero, but it's better from that standpoint. But from a health perspective, organic dairy isn't any better than non-organic dairy. And so the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends milk. Right? But studies show that uh, increased dairy consumption in childhood increases the risk for diabetes, obesity, etc. They get funding from the food industry. Okay? This is why American Cancer Society, American Academy of Pediatrics, a lot of these, because they get funding from the food industry, are not going to come out and make the bold statements I'm making now. Let me speak to ketogenic diet real quick. Ketogenic, paleo, all that stuff. Um, the ketogenic diet came about because there were, uh, they found out that kids with the, um, the epilepsy that couldn't, couldn't really be managed well on medicine, that they found that the ketogenic diet seemed to calm their brain down. I don't understand all of the physiology of that. All I know is in my research for my talk, I looked at ketogenic diet and bones. Um, now, obviously, that's extreme. I mean... It, that's the other opposite extreme of plant-based. But they showed uh, six years on a ketogenic diet in children. These are all children with epilepsy on this diet. That about a third of them couldn't maintain it, which is about right. There's a high... Um, um, people fall out of these trials because they can't maintain the ketogenic diet. Number two, they found an, found an increased fracture rate in those children that were on ketogenic. So... It turns out that the high meat diets actually are, and dairy are actually not doing us, um, getting us the benefits we think. In fact, the, the countries that have the highest dairy consumption, we're not just the only one thing, countries like Norway, Sweden, a lot of the developed countries, they have the highest fracture rates, and the countries that are plant based have the lowest fracture rates. So I know that's kind of a tangential. The non organic wheat in this country is sprayed with Roundup before they harvest about three days before. So basically, the roundup on the wheat, they're now thinking that maybe the, a lot of the gluten intolerance is because of that. And I agree with you in this sense. When I travel to Europe, I was in England twice, in Scotland last year, I could eat wheat products and I didn't have a problem. I'm, I'm uh, gluten-free myself. And um, so yes, that way we handle food in this country, how it's processed is, is also a problem. They also eat more vegetables in a lot of those countries, too. Um, they eat a lot less processed food. They do a lot more cooking. Um, although I, would, I can't speak for Sweden, but I can say for England. England is fast approaching our obesity rates now. And I didn't mention this, but um, right now in, the, in this country, about a third of all adults are obese, and they project by 2030, which is 10 years from now, that at least 50% of adults will be obese. 
And children born after the year 2000 will be the first generation dying before their parents because of chronic diseases. I know I keep harping on all of that, but it's, this, this lifestyle is extremely powerful. It really is, because it can really avoid a lot of heartache down the road. And I know for some, you know, eating isn't just about information. I can, I can give you information all night long. We can stay here all night. But eating is also behavior. It's a social behavior. So there's a lot of hurdles that you have to overcome. You know, I happen to be one of those people, similar to Diane, once I make up my mind, I go for it. And, you know, I just don't look back. Not everyone is that way. And it's, there are pressures from family, from friends, and other things. But I think at the end of the day, you have to ask yourself, why were you, I mean, this is how I, I drop back and go, okay, why am I here on this planet? What is my, what am I here for? And how can I steward my body the best? And how can I do what I'm created to do the longest amount of time that I can? Because at the end of the day, if you want to be around for the people you love, you've got to take care of you first. I have been through not just my parents, but multiple friends dying from cancer recently or getting cancer. I just had a friend diagnosed with stage four colon. Um, the only people that show up to care for them in the end, mostly, is women. That's what ends up happening. We're there at the beginning and we're there at the end. But you gotta take care of you first. It's really hard to do all those things. And for some people, there's really no reason for them to be in that spot. They could have, you know, there's an, op we have options. When you look at food and behavior, 90% of what we do is driven by our emotions. 90% of our behaviors. So we have to rethink. You can't just say, okay, the evidence says this, that's what I should do. Even though that might be a great decision, you've got to know your why. Why are you doing this? And why is this important to you? Because if it gets hard, you got to keep that why in front of you. I'll share a story. I don't know if you know who Harriet Tubman is. She's one of my heroes, even though it doesn't look like she should be one of my heroes. Why? Because this woman was in slavery in Maryland. If you've seen the movie recently, you, or read her books or whatever, this woman was uneducated. She was a slave up until about the age of 25, but she has what I call chutzpah. And she decided that her freedom was worth risking her life for. Do you know when she was a kid, her father taught her about the North Star. And when she decided to leave, she knew she was going to be sold into another worse kind of plantation. So she knew she had a short interval of time. She tried to take people with her, but initially they didn't want to go. Her point of reference was the North Star. That's all she knew. She was barefoot. She traveled at night. She traveled over 100 miles to get from Maryland, somewhere in Maryland, all the way up to Philadelphia by herself without any help, uneducated. She could not read signs. She had no idea where she was. She just followed the North Star. So my question is, what's your North Star? What's your point of reference for deciding this is important enough that this needs to be front and center? So is it your kids? Is it being around for your kids and being able to play with them and see them graduate and see your grandchildren? Is it because you don't want to be immobile or not be able to see your friends when you're 85? You can be able to out driving your car and not having the eyesight problems and memory problems that a lot of people encounter. I mean, it, it might be you're diagnosed with something and you decide this is, this stinks. It is not fun. I mean, if I were diagnosed with insulin, I can tell you right now, I would not want to take, I mean, diagnosed with diabetes, I would not want to take insulin. I would do whatever I could because I don't like needles. I'm a wimp. I don't like most of the treatments that doctors throw your way because they have far reaching implications. And I don't want you to get into a mindset that says you're trapped or you're powerless. You're not. Harriet Tubman was a slave and yet she was not powerless. She chose to do something different. And because she chose to do something different, she went back and got the people she loved later. And I can't remember how many she took out, but even Frederick Douglass, who was one of the greatest orators of all time, said that she was a phenomenal person, that she'd never met, he'd never met anyone like her. Everybody around said that she was phenomenal because she didn't take no for an answer. 
she knew there was another way. And that's what I, you know, I'm not saying you get in an argument with your doc. I'm just saying you, you've got to make a choice about what's important to you and sticking with it. I mean, I'm negotiating with doctors right now about something and I'm back and forth with them on stuff. And I have a physical therapist because I'm rehabbing a rotator cuff problem. And he keeps telling me you need to eat more protein to, to build muscle. And I keep telling him, no, you don't. Did you watch the Game Changers? And he goes, yeah, I did. But they all have their own personal nutritionists and coaches. And I know that they're on more protein than you're on. I get it too. You're going to get opposition, but you have to know why you're doing it. And that why has got to be important enough for you to continue doing it to see the long lasting changes you want. Question is, there's any connection between diet and fibroids? Um, what, what I do know is any fibroid growth requires blood vessels. And okay, so I have not reviewed the literature on that, full disclosure. But I do know this, that there are, um, because a whole food plant-based diet is anti-inflammatory and cuts off blood vessels for new growth of tumors, it should help reduce the size of them. Now, whether or not it can reduce them enough to avoid surgery and those other things, I don't know. Those are actually good questions because those are things we need to research. I've, I've looked at studies that look at soy only, and it seems to have a positive effect as far as reducing the size of your fibroids. But how much, I don't remember. As far as supplements, uh, let me, and it, I didn't mention B12, but you're right. The company I like to buy from is called Jero, J-A-R-R-O. In fact, I had, ironically, the CEO's daughter came in to see me, and I talked to her about B12 or something, and I said, have you tried, you know, get Jero? And she goes, oh, my dad's the CEO of that company. I'm like, okay. Uh, yeah, and then uh, the other thing women really need to pay attention to is vitamin D levels. So the dermatologist pretty much scared us out of the sun, but we do need some sun or exposure to get our vitamin D. That's the natural way of doing it. I mean, 100 years ago, people didn't worry about vitamin Ds because we were outside working all the time. We weren't inside, right? But there's a lot of countries, um, um, for example, some of the countries that have the highest osteoporosis are the ones that are the farthest north, like Canada and uh, Sweden and Norway and things like that. So you want to have a high vitamin D level. You want to maintain a level around 50. That seems to be the most beneficial, 50 or higher, for both preventing breast cancer and preventing osteoporosis. The lower limit of normal on the blood test is 30. Two-thirds of reproductive age women, if they're tested, which usually they're not, are below 30. The other third are usually in the low 30s. So even if you're 31 or 32, doesn't mean that's optimal. You need vitamin D for so many different functions in your body and your immune system in particular. That is something I recommend you get a test for every year, a blood test to check your vitamin D level and make sure you're taking enough. The standard answer as far as supplement, if, if, you don't, if you have a normal, is 4,000 international units a day of vitamin D3. But you may need to take more to get your levels up. So I get mine checked every year. And if you have any malabsorption problems, you may need to be on more to get that level up. Supplements are not absorbed as well as eating the foods naturally. So uh, if, you, if, you, if you're nerdy like me and you like to ask questions on websites about nutrition, go to nutritionfacts.org, which is Dr. Gregor's website. So I recently was looking at vitamin C, um, and uh, he said that your body can only absorb 200 milligrams a day of vitamin C, and it didn't matter how many supplements you took. And actually, uh, your body absorbs it through um, food much better than through the supplements. So. Those industries obviously are well invested in you buying their supplements. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. Um, but food is really your best option for getting those things. And one other comment I want to make before I forget is sugar. <laughs> Processed sugar. So one of the things that is hard for people, and I'm a, I'm a sugar addict. I mean, recovering. <laughs> Seriously. I'm not kidding you. Um, my mother had a sweet tooth, and I think I inherited it from her. Sugar is actually one of those, for me, one of the hardest things to deal with on a whole food plant-based diet, at least initially. And studies have shown it takes you 12 days of not eating processed sugars to get rid of the carb cravings. So that's one thing, if you go whole food plant-based, if you continue to eat sugar, you're going to still have cravings, and that's going to make it harder. And there's natural-based sugars that we can use, like dates, um, date paste, 
molasses and maple sugar, although I have to watch it. Like, I have pancakes twice a year because maple sugar puts me into orbit. But, you know, that's a personal thing. I'm not saying it's not good. It's real good. But uh, for some, it's, it's like taking crack. In fact, they found that sugar is as addictive as crack cocaine. Um, so if you give me sugar, it's like, you know, I end up one of those kids spinning around like a top. Um, so, yeah, you just have to be mindful of that. And I found that as I substitute out things with natural-based sugars, that it, it's my equilibrium is much better. Yeah, so the one I use, if I'm going to use a sugar, which I don't bake a whole lot because I'm, I live by myself. Baking for me, I love baking. The problem is, is I end up eating it all, right? So that's not a good idea for me. Um, but if you have people to bake for, that's wonderful. I use date sugar or you can ground up dates and things like that. You know, diet is a foundational thing or nutrition, but moving is also important. I think the issue we have in America is that the whole way our lifestyles go. I mean, my job in the last five years is far more sedentary than it was 10 years earlier. And so I was packing on pounds and becoming not physically fit. And, and so walking is actually a great exercise. Exercise doesn't have to be, you know, painful. It doesn't have to be you know, a mis drudgery or anything, I encourage people to find what they like or what they enjoy doing or if you enjoy doing it in groups. And it's a great way to meet people and get some activity. So the median age for menopause, which means 50% or so, is 51.4 years of age, which is almost to the day that I got it, which is kind of weird. <laughs> but I always remember that fun fact from residency. I don't know why. But so, yeah, 51 is the average age. It could, you know, there's something called premature ovarian failure, which sometimes happen to women in their 30s and 40s. There's some thought that that could be due to nutrition or diet. I have not specifically studied that one area. I, I couldn't study every possible topic before coming here. <laughs> and I think the harder part is that we don't have good research in a lot of these areas either. I want to make a comment about kids because I have friends who have kids and they're like, how do you get the kids to do this? Well, um, we learned in our uh, eCornell uh, plant-based nutrition course, there's a woman that actually got a PhD out of figuring this out. She was a mom. This is, and this is I want to, I'm telling you this story because I want to encourage you because no matter where you're at, you can make a change, not just with you, but other people. So she's a mom. She's plant-based. She wanted to, you know, uh, impact her school. And so she started uh, classes at the school. I was in New York somewhere. She went into the schools. They, she got them to agree to do a little garden. So the kids were involved in picking vegetables, and they would go in and they'd cook some vegetables. And the kids, and these were elementary school age. These weren't real old. I mean, they were young. They got involved in making up the recipes, and they got all jazzed. And they started asking their parents to buy more broccoli and salad and all these other kinds of things. So one of the things they found out is that if you engage your children uh, in making up the meal plans and uh, the shopping that, I realize for some that backfires. So some people go shopping by themselves for a reason. But when they get interested, especially when they start growing their own food, um, they can become fascinated with it. And I think that's the connection that in America that we've lost a lot is I grew up you know, in an age where we started buying everything at the grocery store. And so I think there is something to be said about um, putting gardens back in school, into communities, in your backyard, on your terrace, if you have an apartment, you know. There's things called tower gardens. I don't know if you've heard of them. They can make all kinds of lovely vegetables, and they pay for themselves in very short order because you start making your own vegetables and you cut down on your food bill. And the kids like it. You know, they really have fun picking vegetables and making recipes out of it. So we asked, can you comment on soy phytoestrogens and estrogen? The estrogen that our body produces, there's two different estrogen receptors in our body. The estrogen we produce in our bodies goes to the primarily alpha receptor and the soy goes primarily to the beta receptor. When you have high estrogen levels, the uh, soy binds to those um, receptors and actually blocks the estrogen. So in high estrogen levels, like before menopause, it acts, has an anti-estrogen effect. 
after menopause, it actually has a positive estrogen effect. And I've just done an extensive review on soy for menopause, for breast cancer, etc. I have nauseatingly looked at the literature. And basically, the bottom line is, is soy does not cause breast cancer. In fact, I would recommend it for any breast cancer survivor. When you, we're talking about consuming soy, we're primarily talking about whole food plant-based. So the soybean would be the whole food. Some people want to eat soy powder or take supplements. That's one way to do it, but you miss out on all the phytochemicals and antioxidants that's actually in the bean. That's the difference between taking something that's a supplement and the whole food. You miss out on a whole lot of good stuff. Secondly, as far as four servings a day, um, usually that's about um, four, one quarter to one half cup servings of soy. Here's the thing though, when we looked at the Japanese population, they said the average Japanese ate anywhere from a one quarter to one half cup of soy a day. There's some went up to two cups. Overall, they found that they reduced their risk for cancer. And I think it's, I think it's the whole lifestyle too. Like when you look at one piece of the pie, you do, it doesn't always tell the whole story, but they're mostly plant-based. So soy definitely is protective, but it's not all of what they're eating either. You know, and I think, unfortunately, you know, media doesn't help soy either. I mean, sometimes the way it's promoted is, seems so out there. I actually, since I d did the research on this topic, I'm eating a whole lot more edamame, <laughs> a whole lot more, almost a cup a day, because I realize it has great benefits. There's a nuancing of those terms. The people that, the purists that use the word juicing connote that to me without the fiber. So there are a lot of good nutrients that are in juice, juices, but um, I would say that if you're going to eat something like that, I would include the fiber. So there are machines that can remove the fiber and just be the juice, but um, we recommend at least the whole food plant-based movement recommends that you leave the fiber in. So for example, um, most mornings, I'll tell you what I do, uh, in addition to eating a small breakfast, I will make up an entire Vitamix full of I use Brooke Goldner's protocol for this. I'll put in six cups of packed greens, about um, a quarter cup of flaxseed, whole flaxseed, about four cups of water, and about two cups of frozen fruit, whatever I feel like that day. And I mix it up and then I take it to work with me and I drink it all day long. I feel, personally, I feel best when I'm eating a lot of greens. And when I'm eating like that, I don't get colds. I don't get sick. I'm not saying you can prevent all things, but I think you can really lower your risk. And because a lot of viral diseases, um, you know, they're opportunistic. They look for the weak, you know, I'm not saying you're the weakest link. I'm saying they look for someone whose immune system is suppressed. And so you, I'd want to look at your vitamin D level too. So I mentioned earlier that um, the, the studies that I have looked at regarding fertility in a plant-based diet is they're favorable. They seem to improve fertility, um, um, improve it like by 50% or more. So vitamin D is also important. I, I mean, I can't tell you, after I've reviewed the literature on vitamin D, I'm like, y'all need your levels checked. Y'all need to get above 50 because when you're below 50, you're more susceptible to a whole lot of problems and infertility is one of them. And the women who had the best conception rate had a level above 50. That's why, that's, that's my cutoff. Um, I know most doctors will be happy if you're 31 or 32, but I don't think that's optimal for your body based on what I'm reading. Yeah, and the reason why we don't give hormone replacement anymore, at least traditionally through Premarin and Provera, which is when I was a resident, literally I was thinking about this. I was in my late 20s and I was thinking, oh, well, you know, when I get into menopausal age, I'll take hormone replacement therapy, no problem, I won't get osteoporosis. All the studies came out that showed that, you know, five years of therapy on that would increase your risk for breast cancer. And now the study's gone out 19 years and they still see an increased risk at 19 years out. So, so that study's almost 20 years old. That was published in 2002. I know some will use bioidentical hormones. Um, I don't have any experience with those. And I know because you can't always, you know, they're not regulated in a way like other pharmaceuticals. It's hard to know. So you have to, people who use bioidenticals have to get their levels checked but I, I have no experience doing that, so. So they will give um, the transdermal patch a lot to patients without a uterus. So you can't give estrogen alone if you have a uterus because it increases risk for endometrial or uterine cancer. There's a lot of people out there that, that have had a hysterectomy and 
they're using the transdermal patch. That seems to be a safer option, but the oral is not. You don't have to experience hot flushes and all that. If, if you're on this premenopausally, then um, you shouldn't even feel. In fact, Japanese uh, as, as a whole, they're like, they don't even have a word for hot flash, okay? <laughs> they have no word for hot flash because they don't get them. I mean, it's very low incidence. And hot flushes are probably, you know, the number one reason why menopausal women have insomnia because they wake up in the middle of the night and if they're sleeping with anybody, they're usually kicking them or throwing the sheets or covers or whatever in whatever direction because they're so hot. The other little tidbit is the average length of hot flushes is 10 years. So the older you get, the less likely you're to have it. But they can last an average of 10 years. That article came out and I'm like, oh, no, you don't. You're welcome. been listening to the plant-based dfw podcast show if you like our content please like share and leave a review our goal is to provide quality episodes to help support the community